In late June, federal authorities warned banking institutions of a new type of wire fraud scheme that involves socially engineering bank employees as well as employees at other businesses. But the attack is not new. Earlier this spring, David Polino, Enterprise Fraud Prevention Officer at Bank of the West, talked about this emerging scheme. This morning, I'm joined by Polino to discuss this and other emerging trends in account takeover and steps his bank is taking to ensure commercial customers are adequately protecting themselves. So, David, before we get into some of the nuances here of this new type of attack scheme, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about what Bank of the West knows so far. In fact, Bank of the West has coined this new account takeover or wire fraud scheme as masquerading. Why do you call it that? Thanks, Tracy. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you uh, on this important topic. We've seen a lot of uh, information being shared, not only in the within the banking community, but also within the, the general business community around this scam, which involves basically a high-tech slant on traditional confidence scams or social engineering scams, where somebody goes into a company, pretends to be somebody, either via email, phone calls, or those types of things, for the goal of committing financial fraud. And when you read through the different articles, the overall goal and the techniques and, the, and how things work isn't always apparent. We've actually had conversations with uh, customers and we've had conversations with other financial institutions. And when we talk about the issue, it seems like there's not a, a solid connect around not only what are the, the tools and techniques that are, are being done, but also what's the end goal uh, from a, a masquerading perspective. So we've actually had to change our nomenclature internally and get away from the bank jargon. We've settled on this term masquerading because really that's what it's about. It's about somebody going in, pretending to be something that they're not for the goal of committing financial fraud. So David, you talked about this scheme back in April, two months really, before the FBI issued its warning about this new type of scheme that you've called masquerading. You mentioned that you were hearing about some of this just in discussion forums and also I guess probably in just discussions with some of your own customers. How did you first learn of the scheme or identify the scheme? We learned about the, the scheme last year from not only our law enforcement contacts, but also from our contacts at other financial institutions. Basically, it's, it's very similar to what we saw uh, many years ago when um, criminals were attacking banking systems. As banking systems didn't have the uh, developed controls in place, the bad guys or the criminals attacked the banking systems directly. They tried to take advantage of vulnerabilities. They tried to brute force passwords. They tried to attack our sites directly. And as the banks became more sophisticated in their controls, either through by regulation or by necessity, the criminals figured out it was easier to attack customers. That's when you saw phishing and malware and a lot of the attacks migrate from attacking the bank systems directly to attacking our customers. And really that's what we're, we're seeing here as well. Instead of utilizing the banking systems to commit the fraud and fooling the banking systems into sending the funds where they're not supposed to go, they've taken it one step removed from the financial institution. And they're utilizing, in some cases, very low-tech methods, in other cases, some relatively high-tech methods, to fool customers into scheduling the financial transactions. That way, when the bank systems detect the suspicious activity and we reach out to our customer, that the customer actually will say that the activity is, is legitimate. So it's, it's a natural evolution that we've seen before 
And uh, we expect to see this type of uh, shifting around with criminal tactics to con continue with different techniques. So, David, are phishing attacks still the primary culprit? I mean, are these the ways that these types of schemes are, are most often deployed? So phishing attacks, when it comes to the evolution of financial crimes, check fraud is still around. Credit card fraud has never gone away. And when it comes to online attacks, things like phishing and malware and all those things are still there in their traditional uh, ways that have been deployed. They're targeting the banks, targeting internal employees, targeting customers. Uh, so we, we still see all of those techniques being used. And then we also see those techniques being used for masquerading. Basically, what you need is you need an in. It's, a, it's basically a social engineering mechanism that has a high-tech slant to it. Uh, so you need a way to get into the system to be able to pretend to be a employee of the corporation. So we've seen that it could be through spear phishing. If you want to attack a specific company, you may be able to look up the principles of the company on social media. You could send them a crafted uh, message to get malware on their machine. You could try to attack their web-based email systems to get access to their email through uh, guessing passwords, password reset mechanisms, uh, those types of things. And we've also recently seen a press release here from uh, Palo Alto Networks that goes in and talks about that some traditional confidence scammers are utilizing commercial malware to take over internal systems at, at companies. So, you know, the, the methods vary, but the, the goal is make it so it looks like I'm a company employee and a company employee that has enough influence within the corporation to be able to execute or request the execution of financial transactions. So, David, you mentioned the compromise of these corporate networks that Palo Alto recently, I guess, brought to light. So is this scheme being perpetrated against internally operated email networks or are web-based email accounts such as Gmail more vulnerable, or is there really no way to differentiate? The attacks do not really care. They could care less whether or not it's an internal mail system or it's a cloud-based email system. We know many corporations, large and small, utilize cloud-based email. We've recommended to our customers um, in the past that if they are utilizing cloud-based email, that they use strong two-factor authentication to help protect those accounts. Because in many cases, those accounts could be used as part of a confidence scheme to be able to fool somebody into executing these transactions. But now we're seeing that in order to increase their available victims or targets, that they're utilizing, in this particular case, commercially available RAT tools to be able to take over internal systems. And although it doesn't say it within the, the guidance or the, the research on the paper, the reason why they want to take over these internal systems is to pretend like they're a person inside the company, request these financial transactions, and then you know steal money from the, from the company. So David, would something like DMARC have helped to prevent some of these attacks from being successful? DMARC, uh, much like um, many of the different uh, technologies, may play a role in helping a certain subset of these types of attacks. When we take a look at how various attacks have been perpetrated, some have set up fraudulent domains that are very close to the company email domains, uh, just off by a couple of letters. Um, and in that case, if, if they went through and, and did the DMARC registration and things like that, it may or may not have uh, helped out in those particular areas. In many of the account takeover or the online email takeovers, the bad guys have infiltrated the actual email systems 
of the companies. So DMARC wouldn't have helped in that area either because they were utilizing the system internally. So you know, DMARC definitely plays a role in helping to secure email communications. It can help eliminate some of the phishing messages and those types of things. But really, you know, the human element to it, the social engineering element still remains there. And the, the criminals will try over and over again to be able to, and they only have to be successful a very small percentage of the time, to be able to fool internal employees that the, they are a legitimate executive within the company and to have them execute transactions. And this can take place over email. It can take place over phone calls. Uh, there are lots of mechanisms in place that can be utilized by social engineers to execute this kind of financial fraud. So, David, what would have helped to prevent some of this? Would some testing, perhaps, of employees to help them detect socially engineered schemes, some type of prevention skill, would that have been effective here? Or would out-of-band authentication in some way help to have prevented some of these fraudulent transactions from actually being approved? Those are all things that could have helped out. So utilizing two-factor authentication, especially for remote access of email, maybe even having internal awareness campaigns where you try to fish your own employees so they're aware of what some of the, the techniques are. And also maybe limiting information sharing on social networks so uh, criminals couldn't, in an anonymous way, reverse engineer, as it were, the, the C-suite and all the, uh, the folks that are involved in, in sensitive financial transactions. But when we talk to our customers and we pick apart a lot of their business processes, sometimes we see very robust processes around things like uh, use of a corporate card. You, know, you have to fill out expense reports. You have limits to the amount of transactions that you can execute for the company. Or maybe it's around accounts payable. You have accounts at suppliers. And when you go to the suppliers, you have to have a purchase order. And those purchase orders are only good for so much. And if, if there's a purchase order that you know, exceeds a certain amount, it has to require multiple signatures. You know, what we do is when we're trying to educate our customers is put in similar types of processes when it comes to your wire transactions your ACH transactions. That way, a single email or a phone call is not enough to issue a high dollar uh, financial transaction, that you would have a process by which a, a form or a secondary review or a callback or some sort of authentication of the communication channel would take place in order to validate the legitimacy of the wire that's going out. And we also need to keep in mind that the bad guys are good at not just requesting fraudulent wires, you know, a wire that didn't exist or that has no business purpose of existing. For example, you know, we're doing a confidential investment in an offshore company. I need you to wire, you know, X hundred thousand of dollars over to this company, you know, keep it confidential. That's one of the, the techniques that the bad guys have used to commit this type of financial fraud. And another one is they masquerade as a vendor and they would say, send your payment to the vendor that you, you send to on a regular basis to this new account number. Or it could even be an executive within the company saying, our vendor has changed account number, so schedule your payments um, this way. These are all ways that the bad guys can masquerade as somebody inside the company or inside a, a trusted relationship, which could be a third party of the company, to commit uh, financial fraud. Another bit of advice we have for our customers is to slow down and think about the transaction. Uh, typically, the criminals will utilize not only a sense of urgency or this transaction needs to go out now, um, but that's also why they utilize uh, senior executives within the, uh, the company because there's that sense of urgency that they need to get the transaction, and it's very important, so they don't want to let down the, 
the C-suite executives within the company. So it's important for companies who are executing these types of transactions to think about the process, think about what they're supposed to do, think about how to confirm the transaction and not let a sense of urgency from a, a key executive to cloud their judgment. And so, David, what role is Bank of the West playing then in helping to educate its customers? Well, Bank of the West likes to have a, a very good, uh, robust dialogue with our customers. We like to talk to our customers, find out what types of issues and problems that they're having, and whether it be uh, solving their needs through uh, financial services we offer, putting in fraud prevention type of products, you know, things like you know, positive pay, ACH block, cash vault services, as well as you know, having good back-end controls that help to detect these suspicious transactions, but then at the same time do not get in the way of our customers' abilities to execute their business. But what we also like to do is to take advantage of the resources that we have within law enforcement and the resources that we have with other institutions, maybe in, in, in specific segments, maybe it's agriculture, maybe it's aviation, maybe it's defense where we have uh, customers in those areas. And as we see issues that may impact their business, either from a financial perspective or from a fraud perspective, we try to reach out to them so they know about the, these issues and they can take the appropriate safeguards and uh, hopefully through our relationship with our customers, uh, build a, a strong business process for them so they can be financially sustainable in the long term. David, I'd like to thank you again for your time this morning. Thank you, Tracy. To learn more about this topic and David Polino's stance on it, please visit Bank of the West's website at blog.bankofthewest.com. Again, we've just heard from David Polino of Bank of the West. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.